Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We have spent a long time in Romans 8 because it deals with many things that Christians struggle with. God wants us to have a firm faith built on the Word of God. So today we come to the end of chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 38 and 39. We are loved forever. Absolutely no separation. Absolutely nothing can separate the believer from the love of God in Christ. And it really is a summary statement that boxes out all other possibilities. It is a glorious conclusion. Really, it comes to this. Our faith is firm in Christ because God's love is strong. Our faith is firm because God's love is strong. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand as I read God's word, I'm going to read the same verses I've read the last several weeks, Romans 8, 31 to 39. I'll remind you, this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God that I have the privilege of reading now. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your presence and for your powerful word. I pray, Lord, that your will would be done in this time. That you would feed your flock, that you would draw people to yourself by your spirit, through your word, all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. Romans 8, 38 and 39 highlight two things, two primary things in this passage that we see. One is our persevering faith. Our persevering faith. Circumstances do not determine our faith in Christ. And secondly, God's powerful love. Circumstances do not determine our standing with God. And those are the two big things we see in these two verses. Now I want to review really the big picture in Romans 8. Because it addresses things that every Christian wonders about. This is kind of like the in case of emergency break glass of the Christian life. Romans 8, 1 through 4. The question, what is true about those uncondemned? Those who are uncondemned in Christ. Well, they're freed from slavery to sin. They've been died for, so now you can obey God. Romans 8, 5 to 13. How does faith in Christ lead to change in my life? Every Christian wants to know that. 
Well, the indwelling spirit of God that changes your nature, guarantees your eternity, empowers you to slay sin. In fact, in that passage, we saw a contrast between unbelievers and believers. There's the mindset on the flesh or on the spirit. Spiritual death or spiritual life. Hostility towards God or friendship with God. Refusing to submit to God or yielded to God. Not pleasing God or pleasing God. And then in Romans 8, 14 to 39, how do I know I have eternal life? How do I know? You need to know. In the first verses, we saw that Christians are adopted children of God, chosen by God, and they're controlled by the Spirit. They cry out to God. They're confident in Christ. In verses 18 to 27, we saw the threefold groaning of creation of Christians and of the Spirit of God. How the creation groans, waiting eagerly, subject to futility, but will be set free. And Christians experience spirit-led good groaning for good things to come, for good glory to come. And then we see the spirit groaning, helping us and praying for us and knowing us. You come to verse 28, and in that verse you see the secret of our security. How God is causing all things to work together for good for the eternal good of those in Christ. And then in verses 29 and 30, the sequence of our security, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he called them by the outward proclamation of the gospel and by the inward drawing of God, and he justified them, made them right with God, and will glorify them. And then you get to verses 31 and 39, and you have the song of our security. It sings the fact, it celebrates the fact that God will not lose one of those he has chosen to set his love upon in a saving way. God will not lose you if you are in Christ. He will do everything necessary to save those he chose. Basically, it's like this. Finally, in case we doubt it for any reason, verses 31 to 39 sums it up with a series of questions. Verse 31, can any power rip you from God and rob you of heaven? Verse 32, is there, is there any danger of God's love lessening or weakening toward you? Verses 33 and 34, can anyone convict the believer of sin in a way that would take away their eternal life? And then verses 35 to 39, a relational question. Can anything separate us from God's love in Christ? As Jesus is interceding for us, as Jesus is loving us from heaven, can anything separate us from him? Christians need to know these, the answer to these questions, and really rhetorical questions with a fourfold no as the answer. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing can make God's love lessen or weaken towards you. Nothing can rip you from God and rob you of heaven. You can't be convicted of your sin uh, eternally once Jesus has paid for your sin. Last time we saw three statements of assurance in verses 35 to 37 where you may look and feel defeated. but There is no possible way for believers to be separated from Christ. There is no possible way for suffering to triumph. There is no possible way for a Christian to lose eternally. And then you get to these last two verses in this chapter. And what you see are two constants in the Christian's life that remind us that there will be no separation from Christ. Verses 38 and 39 are telling us our faith is firm because God's love is strong. 
First, you see our persevering faith. Paul says, I am sure. Our faith is firm. And then you see God's powerful love. Nothing will be able to separate us. God's love is strong. But it's easy to forget, isn't it? It is easy to forget. On a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis, in in the context of, of of a daily life and minds and bodies that are infected by sin, we find it easy to say, what good is a God who doesn't shield me from pain or give me what I want? This is my life. I'll do with it what I want. We'll say it's too easy of an answer to to rely on God's love and God's truth. This week I sent a question out to a group of people across the age spectrum at Grace. I do this periodically just to see what others think as they process biblical truth. And the question was this, what things do you think or feel risk separating Christians or creating the perception that we could be separated from God and his love in Christ? What things do you think or feel? And and I ask for brutal honesty, transparent honesty. And it was striking. The answers across generations fell neatly into four categories. The first was sin. The second was immaturity. The third was thinking God doesn't care. And the fourth was ignoring God's word. Let me give you a sampling regarding our sin. One person wrote, the thing I am most afraid of is myself and my own sin. Things outside of me don't scare me as much, but there is something, sometimes the nagging fear that I will somehow turn away from Christ or sin myself out of his grace. I know theologically why that is crazy talk, but the doubts tend to come, and what if I'm really not saved? What if I'm really not one of the elect? What if I'm just playing a big game and someday I'll turn away? Someone else said, if I struggle and repeat a sin, I might not really be a believer. Someone wrote, our sin, even secret or repetitive, our choices, our rebellion, our willful disobedience that can make me doubt God's continual love for me. And then regarding immaturity, basing security on feelings, Do I feel close to God right now? Do I have an emotional response when I do church and God things? And a constant core belief that we haven't earned it or aren't good enough and struggling with the baggage and pride. These are all things people said as their answers. Pride after growing in Christ, feeling that that's why I'm secure and then when a fall comes, my security is shaken. Or we don't like what what being holy means practically for our lives, so we live lives of mediocrity in our faith. Or that we're conditioned to work for rewards all of our life, and we often feel unworthy of God and his love, and we don't meet our own expectations for Bible study and prayer, and so we assume that everyone is doing better than us. One person wrote, thinking that God forgave us our sins leading up to us confessing them, but we must do something afterwards to pay for them. These are the kind of things we think. Regarding thinking God doesn't care, one person said, as Christians, suffering is sometimes misinterpreting as not receiving God's blessings. Suffering can be overwhelming. So can watching someone else suffer. Life difficulties not being resolved, thinking that God is gone, thinking that God is not helping me, thinking that God is not involved. And this one person said, if you feel far from God, who moved? I liked that. 
Or how about ignoring God's word? Neglecting the Bible, fellowship, prayer. Well, you're going to have no confidence in your relationship with God. If you're disobedient to what we know God wants, refusal to take responsibility for our behavior, our thoughts, our resentments, not repenting or seeking to make it right. Someone said the world defines love as tolerance of all things, no matter how bad they are, which is so different from God's refining love. And believers who are not processing biblically may turn to higher degrees of legalism to assure themselves of salvation or deny the truth of Scripture to remove mandated behaviors or submission to God. And I'm sure you can relate. I know that for me, hearing what others were thinking encouraged me because I'm like, well, okay, so I'm not the only one who thinks these things sometimes. But if we're going to navigate life wisely, we need to understand our sinfulness and our need for Christ and understand God's saving acts in Christ's death for sinners, which is exactly what Romans 1 through 7 told us. And we need to be solid in our security in Christ or we are going to slip into the many errors that professing believers fall into, like trying to earn your way to God or thinking it all depends on you or it doesn't matter how I live or maybe I might be forsaken. See, God wants you growing up in Christ, anchored solidly in Christ, not being tossed to and fro. This is why Romans 8 is so important. This is why we took so long in Romans 8. You have a solid string of soul-anchoring reminders. This is like a parent or a spouse reminding you often of their love, how much they care about you, how much they love you. And it got me to thinking. You know, if, if you aren't deeply in love with Jesus and you aren't completely surrendered to him, this won't seem like good news to you. If you're living for you and don't care about heaven, Romans 8 probably won't excite your soul. It might annoy you. You're like, can we be done with Romans 8? Romans 8 says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That isn't just assurance, that's a test of whether you really belong to Jesus or not, whether you have Christ in your life or not. The celebration we're seeing at the end of Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, that's essential to every believer's life. Every believer's security. It's a celebration. A celebration that our faith is firm because God is strong and his love is strong. Look back at verse 35. Verse 35. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And you have this whole list. It basically tells us circumstances don't dictate. Now you get to verses 38 and 39. That cements it. That solidifies it. That settles it. Look again at verse 37. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So contrary to popular opinion, we are winning a decisive victory in Christ. One writer put it this way. Jesus is the representative man for his people. The head has triumphed and the members share in the victory. While a man's head is above the water, you cannot drown his body. There's no defeat in all these things. Do you realize that Paul doesn't overlook one thing? In tribulation, in distress, in danger, in the face of a sword. Christians are truly safe and are protected by God's power. But just in case 
there's a little sliver of doubt in your mind causing you to reject what has already been said. Paul says, let's just eliminate every possibility. Let's take them all off the table. This is why super conquerors can say with Paul, verse 38, I am sure. That's our persevering faith. Convinced. The Greek word is patho. It means to be persuaded. It means that you came to a particular point of view or the course of action and you have overwhelming certainty. You are convinced, no shadow of a doubt. Now you think about the things you're convinced about in life where you say, you know what, I'll stake my life upon it. You better make sure that thing won't move. The Bible doesn't move. God has written this in iron pen. Patho is in the perfect tense. That's very important. It indicates a past action with continuing results or effects. You have come through a process of persuasion to the settled conclusion. You you became persuaded in the past and you continue to be persuaded. Convinced. You stand convinced. This is, by the way, this is being intensely and personally convinced. Your mind has been changed. You are confident in God. You are sure. What are you sure of in your life? You need to be sure of this. You need to be convinced of objective facts, sure beyond a doubt. Paul was, in the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy, with full awareness that his death was imminent, his death was on the way, he declares in, first, in 2 Timothy 1.12, I am not ashamed. He was suffering for the gospel. He said, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, patho, perfect tense, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. And he's going to his death. He had suffered with Christ. He had learned the secret. Go over to Philippians chapter 4. There's a secret there. A secret. You know when someone tells you, I have a secret I want to tell you? Like a juicy one? Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret is trusting Christ, who indwells you as a believer. Paul knew how inseparable, how irrevocable his union was with Christ. It was built on and guaranteed by by the new covenant in the blood of the Savior. He was persuaded. That was the key to Paul's victorious, you know, shouting up this Romans 8 mountain. It's settled in his heart and mind. Is it settled in your heart and mind? Are you sure? And then Paul just dives in. Take all the possibilities off the table and he starts with death. He starts with death, the thing that so many people fear. He says, neither death, I am I'm sure that, that, that death can't separate me from Christ. He starts with death. Here's a man who saw Stephen die for his faith in Christ. When Paul was an unbeliever, he saw Stephen 
to die for his faith in Christ. And he gave hearty approval to Stephen's death. He thought Christians should die. At that point in his life, he wasn't saved. He thought Christians deserved the death penalty, and he voted for it. He says, death cannot separate the Christian from Christ. In fact, in Acts, Stephen saw Jesus. He says, neither death nor life. Now that's puzzling. What does he mean by that? You know, life is a good thing. We can breathe and live and we're alive today, but how is life dangerous? It's our present earthly life. Very real, very evil dangers are lurking and it's life with its headaches and heartaches and trials and tribulations. It's life as a believer, as aliens and strangers with forces opposing Christ and us. If you're a believer, you have eternal life in Christ. So threats during this present life are conquered. And, and get this, so you've got life nor death. So right there in the first clause, you've got the first enemy, death, that cannot harm believers. But if you experience death, you will be delivered from the dangers of this life. Everything's covered, even in the first two. Romans 14, 7 and 8 says, no one lives for himself. No one dies for himself. As believers, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. You've heard the story of Corey Ten Boom. She's, she's buried right down the block at, at Fairhaven. She was at the Nazi death camp Ravensbrook, and every morning roll call came at 4.30 a.m. Most mornings were bone-chilling cold and most, a lot of the time, the women had to stand out in the cold without moving for hours. Pre-dawn darkness and, and the punishment barracks were nearby. And all day long and all night long, you heard beatings and screaming. Corey and her sister Betsy had a Bible and they would gather the women together and they would read Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And Corey wrote, I would look around as Betsy read, watching the light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. It was not a wish, it was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute in an ever-widening circle of help and hope. She said life at Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. One, the observable external life grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better, truth upon truth, glory upon glory. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Don't be puzzled by life being on this list. Many people fear death, but many people fear life too. Life has its tribulations and trials as well as peace and pleasures. But there is no roadblock in life that can keep the believer away from the love of God in Christ. He goes on. Nor angels, invisible beings, Good and evil, good angels and fallen angels or demons. An angel can't keep you from the love of God in Christ. Nor rulers, principalities, visible earthly governmental authorities, both just and unjust. And then he says, nor things present, 
nor things to come. So nothing that you are experiencing right now, nothing that you will experience in the future can separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? We've talked about this so much in Romans. That you believe that Jesus died substitutionally in your place, that he paid for your sins at the cross and that he was buried and he rose on the third day and he's, he's ascended to the Father and he's coming back. He's coming back with blessing for those who believe. And you believe that. And so you know nothing I experience now and nothing I'll experience in the future can separate me from God's love in Christ. Paul goes on. Nor powers. Plural used to refer to either miracles or to people in positions of authority. And then he says in verse 39, nor height, nor depth. Yet the whole gamut there. Many think this refers to the highest and the lowest star that affects humans. In the ancient world, it was thought that stars determined your fate. So they see this as astronomical terms referring to the high and low points of a star's path. Paul may have intended to describe all of space from top to bottom. But I must tell you, height and depth are not used in the New Testament to refer to stars. We might be trying to squeeze a little too much out of the verse if we, we say it refers to stars. It sounds good, though, doesn't it? Sounds good. But most likely, it refers to difficulties that could easily defeat us but can't defeat God. That nothing in life's path from beginning to end can separate us from God's love in Christ. And then he says this nor anything else in all creation. So in case anything was left out, this covers everything but God. Nothing, neither high nor low, in all the created order can separate the believer from the love of God in Christ. So suffice it to say, this list is comprehensive. It covers everything. It's a clean sweep here. Now some people think that this opens the door for people to choose to separate themselves from Christ. And we know what happens. A lot of people either seem to leave the faith, a lot of people who profess to know Christ seem to leave the faith. And a true believer will repent and come back. A lot will actually leave the faith. They never were believers then. But you have to reject the idea that a true believer can take themselves out of salvation because of the context of Romans 8 and then the rest of the Bible. But you have to take it. Romans 8, 28 to 30 is about an unbreakable process. It doesn't jive to think that, oh, people can choose to separate themselves out from Christ. If God des uh, describes an unbreakable process where those who are foreknown will also be justified. All the foreknown end up glorified as well. So those on whom God has sent his covenant love before he created the world, predestined to share the image of Christ, those he chose before all history will persevere and attain glorification. God's word is, is unbreakable, and it really boils down to that. You either believe the word of God or you don't. He says, nothing in all creation will be able or shall be able Again, um, shall be able is, is, uh, is a strong word. It, it's dunamai. It's a word for power. And it means that you have power by virtue of an inherent ability and resources. And he's saying that nothing in the created order has the inherent ability or resources to get you out of Christ. Not able to separate us. You notice that our will is not mentioned because everything's covered in the blanket statement. 
You are covered in that if you're a believer. That's why Jesus said in John 4, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In John 10, he says, my Father is greater than all. No one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. It has to apply to you as well. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. That's everlasting life. It doesn't end. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. He says, no one can come to to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The goal here, the goal here in these last two verses is to rule out every possibility of a believer in Christ being separated from God's love. Don't go out and say, I think I might be separated from God's love. Don't ignore this. This is for your your comfort and for your assurance. If you think you can earn it, if you think you can be good enough, if you think you can be strong enough, you misunderstand God's grace. If you think God doesn't care for you, you misunderstand God's grace. There there is no easy believism, by the way. There there is no way not to suffer or carry your own cross as a Christian. And the proof, again, is embedded in the context of Romans 8. Look at Romans 8, 17. Go back to that. Romans 8, 17. If children of God, adopted children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But God grants all sufficient grace to believers to persevere. Believers are enabled to endure suffering. The love of God is so powerful, believers won't forsake God despite sword and famine, and and more. Do you notice the last phrase in verse 39? The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know for, for maybe a lot of time you can read that and go, well, that's just a filler statement that kind of caps it off. I want to spend the rest of our time with that phrase. Because that phrase is very important. From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just pause for a moment and think about this. There are a lot of things that can separate you from a lot of things. Okay? You can be separated from your loved ones. You can be separated from comfort and blessings and a sense of well-being and approval. And, but you cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. God can only be known and his love experienced through Jesus Christ in his reconciling death and glorious resurrection. The love of God is stronger than the power of death and everything else. Christ will see to it that what he started will be finished. So what happens is this. Instead of dividing us from Christ, all the things listed draw us closer to him. It draws us closer. It makes us cling harder to Christ. It makes us run to him. If you're a believer, you start running for home when trouble strikes. So many times we think we're independent. We think we are able to make it on our own, but when trouble strikes, the Christian goes running to Jesus. 
I've been reading this passage over and over again, and I want to live it rightly, and it's got me to thinking about just the practical aspects of living this truth. I know a lot of times we're gonna, we would say, well, give me something to put in my toolbox for the next time that thing happens. No, don't, don't take this passage this way. Take it like this. You want to live it. You want to live it in the way you think and the way you process biblical truth and the way that you live. And, and you don't want to miss the next opportunity that awaits you in this room or the next opportunity that awaits you just outside these doors. The next opportunity to bless someone, the next opportunity to help someone. You want to live this and live it rightly. You know, we, we understand we understand the truth. A lot, of times, a lot of times we'll say, well, I know that already. I even, you might be tempted to say, can we please be done with Romans 8? That grieves me. It really does. You shouldn't be saying, can we please be done with the word of God? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another to live it. And if we're not living it, we don't really know it. We understand Romans 8, 38 and 39, really all of chapter 8, and really all of, all of Romans, in light of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember how Romans 8 started? Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. So it starts with no condemnation for Christians. It ends with no separation. You're, you're, you're covered completely. We're convicted, we're, we're convinced, that we're persuaded that we are safe, and it's not a false security. It's tied to God's plan, it's tied to his love, it's tied to Christ's work, and I just want to really break down this last phrase for us here. Let's talk about the love of God, which really encompasses the comprehensive plan of God. The love of God, the golden thread running from Genesis to Revelation, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Paradise prepared for his beloved. One gospel story, the fall of man and God's redeeming fallen sinners. And the whole Bible is pointing to God's love in the saving activities in Christ, how, how he rescues believers from sin and death and hell, and he mercifully alleviates the misery that sin brings on. That's what mercy does. He graciously gives eternal life as a gift, so we trust Christ, and we can be sure of it. God spoke these things unwaveringly. God's word stands. Your feelings, they're like a slip and slide. Your feelings are like trying to walk on slippery ice. God's word stands. Our Redeemer lives. There's a towering assurance of salvation that is rooted in the infallible, unchanging promises of God given by the Spirit and then experienced as you live in active, dependent obedience in your daily life. You experience the love of God. You trust God to bear the fruit of the Spirit in and through you. The love of God that encompasses his comprehensive plan to not just save you, but to save all who come to faith in Christ. The second part is in Christ, in Christ. Now this is pointing out God's covenant love. God's covenant love. We, we break covenant. Just try making a promise and see how far you get on that. We break covenant. Just go back to the Old Testament and see how many times God's people broke covenant with God. Here's the good news. God makes a unilateral covenant with us in Christ. Just like in the Old Testament, he was going through the, the, uh, the, the halves of the animals and the flaming torch and all that. Uh, you have to go look it up. But, but basically, God makes a unilateral covenant. He says, I will do this. You're not, just, you're not doing 50% and I'm doing 50%. I'm doing it all. 
And there's this covenant love of Christ where he keeps covenant with us. That's why you have security in Christ. Three centuries ago, New England pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, every atom in the universe is managed by Christ so as to be most to the advantage of the Christian. Every particle of air or every ray of the sun so that he, the Christian, in the other world, when he comes to see it, shall sit and enjoy all this vast inheritance with surprising, amazing joy. God is working for your joy in Christ. It's an unbreakable covenant, the covenant love of Christ. God keeps covenant. George Matheson was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1842, and as a child, he didn't have all his sight. He had a He had partial vision, and his sight became increasingly worse, and he was blind by age 18, but he was a brilliant student. He graduated from the University of Glasgow, and then he went to seminary. He became a pastor in Scotland. He was beloved. He was greatly respected, and for a short while, he was engaged to a young woman, but she broke the engagement because she said she could not be content being married to a blind man. It was a very painful disappointment in his life, and it led him to write the hymn that goes like this. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. See, God's covenant love in Christ will not let you go. God keeps covenant unilaterally. It doesn't depend on us. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond measure we continue because christ continues which leads us to that last three words jesus our lord he's in charge he's leading the charge he's continuing his work it's pointing out his his unfinished work we talk about the finished work on the christ on the cross but there's the unfinished task and really it points to two things christ's continuing work in believers sanctifying us and Christ's continuing work in the world, saving lost sinners. Christ is sanctifying us, and Christ is saving others. Apart from, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And so, if you think about God sanctifying you in Christ, this is moment by moment, being affected by the word of God, wanting to do what pleases God, loving Jesus, and doing what is right and what is good, uh, scheming how to bless others, devising strategies on how to get the gospel out, um, conniving and consorting with others to concoct good plans to bless other people for Jesus and the gospel. That everyone who follows Christ then, trusting in his finished work, would be engaged in the unfinished task of getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth. You know, I said earlier that Romans is that, in case of emergency, break glass of the Christian life. It is also the food of the Christian life. It's about God giving those in Christ hyper-security through hyper-calamity, through hyper-trials. For hyper-service now and hyper-conformity to Christ later. On a wall near the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, is a portrait with the following inscription. 
James Butler Bonham, no picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. Well, there's no literal portrait of Jesus that exists either, but the likeness of the son who sets us free can be seen in the lives of his true followers. And God, if you're a true follower, God wants you to have a a deep, unshakable, God-given, blood-bought security in his all-powerful love. That in all kinds of suffering, you would not run from him, that you would not curse him, that you would not leave him, but that you would trust him and cling to him when everything is taken away. That you would say with Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But what do we do? We exchange true joy and peace for momentary comfort. We break under a load of cares when God wants us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. So we exchange soul-strengthening hardship for quick fixes that hurt us more. While weak and poor and sick and afflicted and harassed and downcast and unsaved, unloved people perish. God's goal in all of this is, is not to add security to your life that's fully just committed to earthly things. Eternal security is granted to believers to free us from lives committed to earthly things. To give us joy and actually to give us courage to to meet needs and not seek an easy life, but to lean hard on Jesus in your deepest pain and still be ministering the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. I want to say as I close, you need to beware easy believism. Here's what one of the people wrote when I asked that question earlier this week. And I'm just going to share it in its entirety. Some of you are fully convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But you thought less about how somebody enters into that love in the first place. Do you really have all of your hope set on Jesus Christ? Romans 8 sings the glory of Christ. Sings the love of Christ. Oh, come, let us adore him. He of whom the prophets spoke, they, they waited for him. In, in Micah 5.2, O oh, Bethlehem Ephratah, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me, one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. They shall dwell secure. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. You notice he will make them secure. This is the message of Romans 8. He, Jesus, holds us. Thank you, Lord, that our security is founded in Christ for whom we wait And Lord, as we are about to come to the table, and as you have challenged and encouraged us together by your Spirit, applying your word to our hearts, 
pray, Lord, that by your grace we may live this life together for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.